The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. As I mentioned last Sunday, I want, to, I want to spend two weeks on this issue of faith and politics or government. Um, <clears throat> and last week, I started into the first part in this series by looking at uh, Matthew, I mean Luke 20, verses 19 to 26, where um, the religious leaders try to trap Jesus by asking him if it's um, good for them to pay this poll tax that they were required to give to Caesar. And so we unpacked that a bit, looking at other passages like Romans 13. Today's message is going to be a little broader, where it's going to be more topical. And I'm going to move beyond the book of Luke and take a look at a couple different passages elsewhere and talk a little more broadly about what the church's engagement should be in politics and government and things like that, okay? So why don't we begin with a word of prayer as we uh, lift this message up to the Lord and God, we do ask that you would open our eyes to uh, see and understand uh, your truths regarding a topic that we don't talk about very often, and yet uh, I believe is very important. And help us to grapple with what it really means to be a part of your kingdom, and yet living in this world, and what it means for us to declare your glories to this generation, and the specific nature of what that mission looks like in each one of our lives. And use your word to open our eyes to be able to understand these truths, for we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, The 1986 movie, The Mission, um, can I ask how many of you have seen this movie? Um, Okay, maybe about a third of you. If you haven't, watch it, okay? It's one of my favorite, all-time favorite movies. Um, Go straight to Blockbuster and rent that VHS, all right? And then go home and watch it this evening. Um, this movie, The Mission, tells the story of the South American Jesuit mission in the mid-1700s. Uh, these Jesuit priests traveled deep into the uh, Amazon jungle and Paraguay and Argentina uh, and convert these uh, indigenous native people known as the Guarani uh, to Christianity. And the church, through this church that they build among these native peoples, um, the Jesuits build this thriving series of mission, missions uh, that provide these Guarani with education and agriculture. And even these missions provide a sanctuary from the slave trade that was very prevalent during those colonial days. Um, These missions, these Jesuit missions, are protected by Spanish law. But under this new treaty, this Treaty of Madrid, uh, that happened in 1750, all of these mission territories were handed over from Spain to control of Portugal. And whereas Spain had outlawed slavery by then, in these colonial territories, uh, Portugal was still practicing the slave trade. And so these Portuguese were eager to get their hands on these Jesuit missions because basically they wanted to turn these Guarani into slaves to 
produce forced labor for their plantations. And so an emissary is sent from the Pope, from the Vatican, to visit these missions on the ground and to see if, after visiting them, any of them ought to be spared, protected in this transfer of these lands to Portugal. But eventually it becomes very clear to these Jesuit missionaries that this whole visit from the Vatican is just a sham. It's all for show because the truth is the Catholic Church has already decided that every one of the missions would, not, would, would be handed over to Portugal. And so the clip that I want to show you from the movie reveals the divided response of the Jesuit missionaries once they learn the fate of their mission. Um, <clears throat> so if we could actually have the lights and we'll take a look at this clip and then we'll go on. So you want, they want you to speak more clearly. What, what is it exactly you want me to do? They must leave the mission. They say they don't want to leave the mission. The mission is their home. They must learn to submit to the will of God. Tell them. They say it was the will of God that they came out of the jungle and built the mission. They don't understand why God has changed his mind. I cannot hope to understand God's reasons. Says, how does he know you know God's will? He doesn't think you speak for God. He thinks you speak for the Portuguese. I do not personally speak for God, but I do speak for the church, which is God's instrument on earth. He says, why don't you speak to the king of Portugal? I have spoken to the king of Portugal. He will not listen. So he is also a king. He also will not listen. Since they were wrong ever to have trusted us, they're going to fight. Well, then you must persuade them not to fight. I failed to persuade you to fight on their behalf. If they do fight, 
It is absolutely imperative that no one of you should even seem to have encouraged them to do so. And therefore, all of you will return with me to Asuncion tomorrow. If anyone should disobey this, you will be excommunicated, cut off, cast out. Why must they fight? Why can't they return to the jungle? Because this is their home. Did you know this was going to be your decision? Yes. Then why did you come, Your Eminence? To persuade you not to resist the transfer of the mission territories. If the Jesuits resist the Portuguese, then the Jesuit order will be expelled from Portugal. And if Portugal, then Spain, France, Italy, who knows? If your order is to survive at all, Father, the missions here must be sacrificed. What were they saying? They said they didn't want to go back to the forest because the devil lives there. They want to stay here. And what did you say? I said I'd stay with them.
I want to renounce my vows of obedience. Get out, Rodrigo. I won't listen to you. Trust you? No, it's Ralph and John, too. What do you want, Captain? An honorable death? They want to live, Father. They say that God has left them. He's deserted them. Has he? never become a priest. But I am a priest, and they need me. Then help them as a priest. If you die with blood on your hands, Rodrigo, you betray everything we've done. You promised your life to God, and God is love. This command to surrender these missionary territories creates this sharp divide among these Jesuit priests uh, between those who decide to take up arms and fight against the Portuguese and those who choose the path of nonviolence. And it's an interesting question, isn't it? If you were there in that moment in time and you were one of these Jesuits, What would you have done? Would you have chosen the path of armed resistance? Or would you have chosen the path of nonviolence? This raises a, a lot of questions when we talk about faith and politics. What should the church's basic posture be when confronting injustice? As Christians, what is the proper exercise of power? in trying to enforce the things that we believe to be right in life? How politically active should Christians be? And what does that political activism look like? Um, As I mentioned in some recent sermons, throughout Jesus' ministry, he kept it secret that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior, We looked at John chapter 6, verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. These people, these Jews, were so desperate for a savior, for a Messiah, that they were even at one point in his ministry going to forcefully crown him as king and declare that God's kingdom had come. And so to allow himself to complete the mission that his father had sent him on, he hid his identity from the world. And yet despite the secrecy that Jesus held, he couldn't contain the growing groundswell of popularity that he experienced as he began to do these spectacular miracles like feeding the 5,000 or raising people from the dead. The rumor mill must have been cranking full speed as people said, he's got to be the Messiah. I mean, there's no way he's not the Messiah. I know he's reluctant to admit it, but this Jesus has to be our Savior. So much so, so that now when they discover that Jesus is marching to Jerusalem, I think everyone's wheels are turning, and they're like, here he goes. 
He's going to the capital city. He's going to Jerusalem because he's finally going to play his cards. He's going to declare that he's the Messiah. And so by the time that he reaches Jerusalem, the crowds are in a frenzy of anticipation and excitement, welcoming him like they would welcome a conquering king. In fact, they call him king when he enters the city. And also we found in the last few messages that we were looking at in the Gospel of Luke that as he enters this final week of his life and enters Jerusalem, he becomes much bolder and courageous about, uh, about declaring to the world his identity as the Messiah and claiming what he demonstrates to be his rightful authority as the leader of God's people. Now, we typically interpret these events through a, a spiritual lens, but we can't lose sight of how politically dangerous Jesus' actions were during that final Passion Week. In other words, his claim to this authority was a direct challenge to Rome, to Caesar, and it was a direct challenge to the high priesthood, to those who considered themselves the religious leaders of God's people at that time. And it was in this charged political atmosphere that the religious leaders challenged Jesus about whether or not they should pay this tax that the Jews considered to be unjust to Caesar. Jesus responded to them in Luke 20, verse 25. He said, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In other words, acknowledging my authority over your life doesn't mean that you shouldn't obey earthly authorities as well. In fact, last week, we saw this consistent teaching in Scripture to obey all earthly authorities that have been placed over us. Why? Because the argument is that they are expressions of God's authority over you. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. But now that raises the question of, is submission and obedience the final word on Christians and secular governments? Faith and politics. Just submit to the state. Well, even in the message last week, we took a look at how there are actually times when we have to resist, when we have to obey God rather than man when we may be called to resist earthly authorities, when we're called to rise up in political action and maybe even civil disobedience. But here is the pressing question. How do I know when I'm supposed to submit and obey versus rise up in arms and, and strike back and take a stand? In 1975, this guy Richard Niebuhr published a book called Christ and Culture, which would actually very quickly go on to be a classic, a modern-day classic that is referenced all the time. Um, In this book, he painted a picture of five different ways in which the church has historically interacted with the broader culture, the broader society. And in the first one, he called it the Christ against culture that saw the world as hopelessly evil. And the message for those who believe this view say, we, the goal of the church is separation from the world. 
We need to get as far away from the world as possible so that we are not polluted by the world. So out of that belief, these are the groups that create Christian subcultures. Uh, For example, uh, we cannot let our children go to public schools. So we have to create our own school systems or homeschool them uh, to protect them from public schools. Um, In America, we see groups like the Mennonites or what sometimes what we refer to as the fundamentalists or even some very conservative Baptist groups tend to fall in this camp of Christ against culture. Then there's another view called Christ of culture. This is the exact opposite end of the spectrum. This is basically compromised Christianity. It's basically cultural Christianity. It's in essence to lose any distinctive eternal message about the gospel of sin and salvation and the cross and basically sees Christianity just like all other higher religions. It's all about morality. It's about making the world a better place to live. And this is typically what we would call liberal Christianity. It's Christ of culture. The church and the broader society are basically the same. There's also another view called Christ above culture. Um, I don't want to get, I don't want to really unpack this one because this one's a little complicated. It's the view that is held by the Roman Catholic Church. And if you're really interested, buy the book and read it for yourself, okay? But I don't want to add complication to this, what is already going to be a very dense, complicated message, okay? So just, there's one called Christ above culture, but then there's also one called Christ and culture in paradox. This is the view that's held by the Lutheran church. In this view, basically says, Christians are living with one foot in one kingdom and one foot in another kingdom. We're living in the kingdom of this world, but we also live in the kingdom of God. And these two allegiances are held in great tension and difficulty. And so when we, as citizens of the world, kingdoms, uh, live in that world, we obey the laws of the land. We drive the speed limit. We pay our taxes. We vote. We send our sons and daughters to war. But then there is also our allegiance to God's kingdom. And so we pray. We study scripture. We share our faith with others. And the point is that sometimes these two allegiances collide with one another. And it can often be a struggle, this paradox of trying to live in two kingdoms. Finally, there is Christ, the transformer of culture. This is typically the Presbyterian and Reformed circles. In this view, it's to have a more proactive, engaging view of culture that says, you know what? What Christians are called to do is to transform culture. We ought to find Christians getting engaged in the arts, in politics, in education. There ought to be Christian professors in the secular universities, Christian doctors in hospitals, Christian teachers in the public school systems. And our mission is to transform all of those different institutions through our Christian influence. Now, just want to pause for a minute and ask you, whoops, sorry, fix that later, okay? Um, Which view would you say is the biblical view? Which view would you say you hold to? It's kind of confusing, isn't it? (laughs) You kind of see merit to all of them, right? Like, 
they all seem to have some aspect of a good argument. And I think the truth is, I don't think a single one of these views adequately captures what the Bible teaches us about how, as Christians, we're supposed to engage with the world. In Daniel chapter 2, this king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is disturbed by this repeated dream that he has that caused him to have these fitful, sleepless nights. Because the problem is this recurring dream is haunting him, but he doesn't know what it means. And so he gathers the astrologers and magicians and other advisors in his court, and he says, hey, this dream is just driving me crazy. It's, it's plaguing me. He says, I want you guys, I mean, I'm paying you good money. I want you to tell me what this dream means. But you get the sense that he's a little skeptical about these guys. He doesn't really trust them. I think he thinks they're phonies. So he says, so that I know that you're just not blowing smoke, says, I'll know that you really speak on behalf of God if you actually tell me what my dream is first. And then you tell me the interpretation. And then I'll know you're for real. So he utters this charge to the people in his court. And this is what they respond to King Nebuchadnezzar. The astrologers answer the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. So they said, no one asks this king. They ask for interpretations, but how can we get into your mind and tell you what you actually dreamt? That's crazy. Filled with rage. The king says, you guys are all a bunch of phonies. And he says, execute every one of them. The prophet Daniel hears about this. And he tells the king, I can tell you what you dreamt. I'll tell you your dream, and I'll give you the interpretation of it. And he tell, so he comes to the king and he says, king, this is what you dreamt. You dreamt that you saw this enormous, magnificent, dazzling statue. And the head of that statue was pure gold. And the chest and arms of the statue were made of silver. And the belly and the thighs were made of bronze. And the feet, interestingly, were a mixture of iron and clay. And then Daniel interprets this dream for the king. And he says, that golden head of the statue represents your kingdom, Babylon. And then he says, after you, a second kingdom will emerge. It won't be as glorious as yours, and that's why it's made of silver. And what we know on this side of history is that would become the Medes and the Persians, who actually, in fact, defeated Babylon. And then Daniel goes on and he says, there will be a third kingdom that will defeat that second one. And it's going to be one that's so vast, it's pretty much going to cover the world. And we know now that Daniel was prophesying the Macedonian Empire with Alexander the Great, who spread Greek culture to the very edges of the known world. And then Daniel says there will be a fourth kingdom. This fourth kingdom is going to have unprecedented power, 
greater than any of the other ones, and that's why it's at least partially made from iron, the strongest of all of those metals up there. It's going to be an incredibly powerful kingdom, but that iron is going to be mixed with clay. And so it's going to be brittle at certain points. It's going to be a divided kingdom. They're going to have struggle, stay united. We now know that that fourth kingdom that Daniel prophesied about was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. And then Daniel goes on and he says, but there's more detail to your dream, isn't there, king? In Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 to 35, it says, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. It says, a rock was formed not by human hands. And it came hurtling through the air and struck the feet of this statue. In other words, the destruction that was going to happen would happen in the age of this fourth kingdom, right? It struck the feet. It would happen during the rule of the Romans. And Daniel then explains the meaning of this rock. Daniel chapter 44, 2, verse 44 to 45. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold pieces. 600 years after Daniel prophesied these things, at the height of the Roman Empire, Jesus came to the earth. And he fulfilled this prophecy of the rock that was coming to crush all the other empires of the world. The history of our world appears to be driven by one empire rising after another in this world, dominating the world. But what the Bible tells us is that in the midst of all of these great empires, God has been building his own kingdom that will one day overcome and destroy all other kingdoms. And here is the truth. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a citizen of that kingdom. Now, I want to say this. As Christians... I don't believe we are called to disengage from the broader culture, from the rest of the world, and just create our own subcultures. I don't think that's the call to Christians. 
I believe we are called to actively engage with the broader culture, influencing it in ways that honor Christ. And historically, that is what Christians have done in just about every generation. If you look at the history of Christian influence in modern history, it's breathtaking. It was largely through Christian influence that infanticide was outlawed in Western civilization. I don't know if you know that, but before Christians got involved, it was considered absolutely okay to leave a newborn baby out on your front lawn to be eaten by dogs if you just didn't want to have that baby. It was considered a legitimate way to get rid of a child until the Christians said that life is precious. There is sanctity in life, and that ought to be outlawed. In fact, they also were responsible for outlawing the gladiator fights that were happening in the Colosseums. That's what ended the gladiatorial fights was Christians who said this is barbaric, watching men kill one another for the entertainment of others. Years later, Christians would be responsible for stopping the practice of human sacrifice in various places in Europe, like in Ireland. Christians were instrumental in stopping the burning, the live burning of widows in India. They were instrumental in stopping the the cruel torture of binding the feet of young women in China. If you study the anti-slavery, the abolitionist movements in America and in Britain, Christians were absolutely central to those movements. This is God-honoring work when we help to shape the broader culture through our influence on society. And I would argue that right now there are a lot of important issues at stake in our generation whether we're talking about gay marriage or access to health care, universal access to health care, or the environment, or this whole issue of illegal immigration and what we're supposed to do about this situation. And the decisions that our generation makes on these issues is going to have a profound impact on the kind of nation America is going to be going forward for years, if not decades, to come. And I argue that as Christians, we ought to be informed participants in this national discussion that is going on right now over these issues. And yet at the same time, I would say this is, I'm rather saddened to see how uninformed and even disinterested many of my Christian brothers and sisters are when it comes to these kind of political issues. It's as if for many Christians, we've just chosen not to care to totally disengage and say, well, I don't really, I don't, none of that stuff really matters to me. I also want to press another point about this, is I don't believe that the Bible's answers to a lot of these issues like immigration and gay marriage or issues about universal health care are very simple. I don't think that there's one Bible answer that tells every Christian what we ought to do for a lot of these issues. Um, I think the truth is we're going to have to wrestle a lot with a lot of different biblical principles before we arrive at a thoughtful, Christ-like response to these things. And at the end of the day, the truth is, even in a church like ICC, 
when we've wrestled with the issues, I don't think we're going to even all agree on what the godly thing to do is on these matters. But that's okay, because I'm not quite sure there is one right answer to a lot of these questions. But at the same time, this dream of Nebuchadnezzar shows us that God is building a kingdom that is also in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. Um, As Christians, we must never lose our distinctive identity as citizens of God's kingdom. And again, as I was preparing this message, I was so struggling about like, I don't know which buttons to push in this message. And I just, I'm just going to push them all, you know, and say, and then I'll work with the aftermath of it if you guys hate me or go, I don't want you to be my pastor anymore or whatever. But um, honestly, in our day, I really worry that the evangelical church in America has become co-opted by the Republican Party, okay? And I grieve that. I think for many people, especially outside the church, they see Republican and evangelical Christian as basically one and the same. And I think there is a great danger in that. Um, Philip Yancey writes this. When I ask my airplane seatmates, what comes to mind when I say the words evangelical Christian? They usually respond in political terms. Yet the gospel of Jesus was not primarily a political platform. In all the talk of voting blocks and culture wars, the message of grace, the main distinctive Christians have to offer, tends to fall aside. It is difficult, if not impossible, to communicate the message of grace from the corridors of power. The church is becoming more and more politicized. And as society unravels, I hear calls that we emphasize mercy less and morality more. Stigmatize homosexuals. Shame unwed mothers, persecute immigrants, harass the homeless, punish lawbreakers. I get the sense from some Christians that if we just pass enough harsh laws in Washington, we can turn our country around. I feel that our clumsy pronouncements, our name-calling, our hysteria about important issues, in short, our lack of grace, may in the end prove so damaging that society no longer looks to us for the guidance it needs. I hope you hear Yancey's words clearly. That sometimes we can allow the Christian message to become so politicized that we lose anything unique about the gospel. We just become one more political party out there. And this becomes a part of that difficult dance that I'm talking about. I do believe that Christians are called to be politically active. And yet in that political activism, to safeguard something transcendent about the gospel message that cannot be captured by any political party that will ever rule in this country. I think what has happened by aligning ourselves so closely with republicanism, I get it, because during the 1970s and 80s, it was really all about abortion, wasn't it? Uh, Abortion, Roe versus Wade, took center stage. And it was the Republicans, not the Democrats, that were willing to take the pro-life stance. 
And so I think it became a given for every conscientious Christian that if you want to be politically active and be a follower of Christ, what choice do you have but to declare yourself a Republican? Choose life after all, right? But I think one of the problems by aligning ourselves so close with the political platform is that it has really distorted the fuller picture of ethics that Jesus talks about. I rarely see Republicans talking about fair wages and the poor. Instead, it's this Reaganomics trickle-down economy, right? Feed the rich, and it'll all eventually work its way down to those in poverty. I don't know if that's the ethic of the kingdom of God, to be honest with you. And also, as Yancey identifies and many other writers, there has grown this increasingly strident, graceless, self-righteous tone with which Christians often enter into this debate. And I think there's a place for us to have pause and say, what does it mean for us to engage in a Christ-like way with the world on these subjects? I want to say this as well. We need to distinguish between an act that is immoral and one that is illegal. Because they're not, they shouldn't be one and the same. I want, for example, for you to just think about the Ten Commandments for a minute, would you? Just peruse this list. No other gods before me. No idols. No graven images, right? Don't misuse God's name. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Now, there's a big battle going on in America today about posting the Ten Commandments in courtrooms, right? And other village halls and places like that. That's become one of the big culture war battles that is going on in America. But can I actually ask you a question? How many of these commandments would you like to see become law in the United States? Punishable by jail. Honestly. Do you really want this to be the law of the land in America? I'd be honest with you, even as a pastor, I don't. I think at most, I would want two of them. Okay? Don't murder and don't steal. Okay? Um, How about, let's just take as a case study, number four. Keep the Sabbath holy. Um, God is pleased when we honor his Sabbath rest. He is. He's pleased when his Sabbath is observed and honored. But would we really want non-Christians arrested because they weren't resting on the Sabbath day? Or even to tone it down a little bit, would we want to pass legislation that forces all businesses, Christian or otherwise, to close their doors on, let's say, Sunday? Although it's, I'd argue Sunday's really not supposed to be the Sabbath. Probably should be Saturday. But do you think that that would be a good thing? For Christians to influence American politics that way? I think even as Christians, I don't think that most of us would view that as a good thing. Um, Why? Because this practice of honoring the Sabbath, we recognize, ought to flow out of a heart that has been transformed by God. That understands the true purpose and meaning of finding rest in God, right? Right? It's like if that heart change doesn't occur, then does that outward expression really mean anything, right? 
I think that's part of the problem with trying to legislate this kind of morality in America. Well, let me give you another example. What about drunk driving? What about drunk driving, DUI? I think at the same time, all of us would agree agree that it's a good thing that there are laws in the U.S. that prevent people from driving drunk, or at least punish them if they do, right? This is a good thing. Why? Because thousands of people are killed every year by drunk drivers. In fact, even with the laws in place in the last few years, generally there have been almost 10,000 people in America killed every year because of drunk drivers still. Now here's the thing. In a democracy, we place a high value on freedom and rights, don't we? Which is a good thing. But like every society... Those freedoms have to have limits. And these DUI laws are examples of that. Protecting society from those who would choose to drive while intoxicated. Meaning, if you are going to potentially harm others by driving drunk, we are as a society going to revoke your privilege of driving in order to protect others. Now, let me say this. In this whole drunk driving issue, I think as Christians, we would say the greatest hope is that Jesus would come into your life so that you would have a completely different view of alcohol, so that you would no longer need these substances to stimulate you because Christ is enough for you. So that, ultimately, you would never drive drunk because you no longer need to be drunk. But is it realistic to think that we can get rid of drug drivers through the preaching of the gospel? I don't, realistically. And again, maybe you say, ah, that's such a pessimistic view. Here, let's be honest. There will always be drunk drivers in America, no matter how powerful the witness of the church is. And therefore, we need drunk driving laws, right? Now, let me say this. In the ongoing culture wars, I hear a lot of this kind of statement of particularly directed at Christians. Don't try to legislate your morality on us, right? That, that's a, often an accusation directed at Christians. Don't legislate your morality on us. But the truth is this. All legislation flows out of some system of morality, doesn't it? If it's not Christianity, it's got to be something else. The question is, which system of morality are we going to embrace as a society to determine the laws of this land? And it's in that argument that even when you think about murder, theft, rape, I don't think there's anybody, Christian or non-Christian, who would say we should get rid of those laws because we want ultimate freedom for everyone to choose to do whatever they want in American society, right? Everyone says there should be laws against murder. But do you realize that even the anti-murder laws are legislating morality? The question is, whose morality is being implemented here? So the point is this. As Christians, we have a right and a privilege and an obligation like any other citizen of this country to participate in the discussion of the laws that ought to govern this country. 
And the whole purpose of this is to create a safe, peaceful, ordered society that functions well. Where I don't have to go out in the street and worry that someone's going to shoot me or something like that, okay? Um, I would argue this, though. We become politically active not because we're trying to make America a Christian nation. Do you understand that? I don't think that's our mission or our calling is to make America a Christian nation. Or to think that somehow, if I could get even non-believers to obey these laws, they can become saved through them. Maybe in a very faint way, that might prove to be a witness, but I think it's a very weak witness if you really want me to be honest. And that's where I want to say that heart change operates more in the other kingdom that we are a part of. It's a whole different set of values that we embrace versus being participants in the earthly kingdoms of which we are citizens. Remember that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of this rock landing on the statue and obliterating it, smashing it to smithereens, to dust. And it says it just blew away like chaff, and there was nothing there except the rock. And then that rock began to grow and grow and grow until it became a mountain and filled the whole earth. So Jesus arrives on the scene during that fourth empire, the Romans, the feet of clay and iron. But let's be honest here. That picture of the kingdoms of the world being blown to smithereens, this is actually what happens is Jesus gets nailed to a Roman cross. It actually looks like the Romans win. The feet of clay and iron remain. But this is the mystery and the beauty and the power of God's kingdom. There is a kingdom that God is building on this earth. But the weapons that we fight with are not like the weapons of this world. And the power that we display is not like the powers of the great empires of our world. This is what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 to 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing powers from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. That is a picture of the growing kingdom of God in our world. Is we win one more citizen to a kingdom by loving them into the kingdom and serving them and sacrificing for them. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. I'm going to guess that almost none of you recognize who this woman is. And I'll close with this. Her name is actually Norma Lee McCorvey. I'm guessing even if I tell you the name, it still doesn't ring a bell, right? She is actually the Roe in the Roe versus Wade, okay? She is the woman that won against the U.S. government to basically fight for the rights of abortion in this country. And she hated Christians. She hated the church. In fact, she would go on after winning this case to work at an abortion clinic so that as many women as wanted to could get abortions. 
She called it my law proudly. This is my law. Under that alias, Jane Roe. And the truth is, Christians hated this woman. They saw her like Satan. You destroyed single-handedly our nation. And they hurled insults at her and threatened her. But you know, interestingly, there was this group of Christians that were picketing the abortion clinic where she worked on staff. And they were a little different than other groups. And they began to just talk with her like another human being. And during her cigarette breaks outside the clinic, they began to witness to her and love her. And then this seven-year-old girl, this daughter of one of these protesters at this abortion clinic, invited her to church and said, do you want to come to church with us? And through that loving witness of these Christians, she said yes and heard the gospel message and became saved. And now she is our sister in Christ and is pro-life. It's amazing, isn't it? This is how the kingdom of God grows in our world as we love people into that kingdom, one soul at a time. Let's pray. I know this is not like my typical messages. <laughs> Usually my sermons are more about personal application, about what God is doing in your life. But as a church family, I'm actually inviting you to take your eyes off of yourself today and look at the world that surrounds you. Because that's also part of our identity as Christians. Not always just woe is me and how is, gonna, how is God going to fix my problems through this message this Sunday. But it's about the picture of a man who appeared on this earth 2,000 years ago, a humble carpenter, and preached the message so radical that it changed the world forever. 600 years before that, remarkably, this great prophet Daniel said, a rock is coming that is going to smash all other kingdoms. And it's going to grow until one day it covers the earth. And that is the kingdom of God that he is building. And you and I, if we follow Christ, are citizens of that kingdom. At the very end of that movie, the mission that I showed you a clip from at the beginning, the closing scene, they display this Bible verse. John chapter 1, verse 5. And that movie ends with this line. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I just want to invite you to think about your life and the people in your sphere of influence. It's not necessarily about politics and government. Maybe it's about your parent-teacher association. Maybe it's about your child's gymnastics class or little league team. Maybe it's about your coworkers in your workplace. But God is calling every one of us to be a salt and a light and to declare his mercies to a world that is dying and lost. 
And my hope is that coming out of the sermon today, um, God might stir your heart to be renewed in that conviction that he is inviting me as a citizen of this kingdom to declare his glories and participate in this kingdom work. And that God might give you the courage to be his mouthpiece. So that whether you are in the fine arts or in politics or education, that through those different means, God would use you as his instrument to praise his name because that kingdom is going to destroy all other kingdoms. And at the end of human history, his alone will stand. And it says every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So let's be a part of that work that God is doing and say, Lord, how do you want to use me to touch a life today? Would you just pray that and our worship team will come and lead us in a time of response to these songs?